Hello and welcome to this podcast talking about the Anglo-Saxon exhibits in the British Library. The aim of this podcast is to provide you with a quick tour of the Old English manuscripts on display at the British Library. This is meant as a guide to accompany you around your tour of the exhibits. At various points I will suggest you pause the podcast while you move to the appropriate exhibit. To begin with you should be standing in the main foyer of the British Library. British Library is situated on the Euston Road next to St Pancras Station. Press pause until you are there. In the foyer to the left of the information desk you will see a large white staircase. Follow this up towards the John Ritblatt Gallery. However at the top of the stairs pause and look to your left. Here you will see four busts on the wall and it is the first one that draws our attention. This is Sir Robert Cotton, born in 1570 and died in 1631. Cotton was a Member of Parliament but is mainly known as a great antiquarian collector of manuscripts. It is to Cotton that we owe a great debt for the survival of many Old English manuscripts. Throughout this tour we will see his legacy. Now go to the entrance of the Sir John Ritblatt Gallery. This gallery is one of the great unsung treasures of modern-day London. Within the cabinets in front of you are key literary and historical documents from Britain and the rest of the world, plus a selection of sound recordings. However, for the purposes of this tour, we are going to concentrate solely on Old English manuscripts, namely those produced during the Anglo-Saxon period, which mark the beginnings of the English language, literature and the English nation. We are going to begin by looking at a very famous Anglo-Saxon text and attempting to read the manuscript. Go to the case behind the large central pillar in the room that contains the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Pause the podcast until you get there. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is one of the great historical texts of all time. It was started in the reign of Alfred the Great, sometimes towards the end of the 9th century and attempts to record year by year from the year AD 1 through to the coming of the Anglo-Saxons to England, the formation of the main kingdoms and the later history of England. Each entry, known as an annal, covers one year. There are nine surviving copies of the Chronicle, although two are copies of others, and one of them still records entries up to 1154, nearly a hundred years after the Norman Conquest. Let us look at the manuscript in front of us. It is not a particularly beautiful manuscript in terms of illustrations, but note down the margin the writing in red. These are dates in Roman numerals for each year, and thus each entry. You can also see occasionally in the margin a word written, such as Rochester. This is in a later hand, probably from the 16th or 17th century, and if you look at the main body of the text you will see words underlined. What appears to have happened is that a later scholar, possibly attempting to learn Old English, has underlined words in the original that they recognise, notably names of towns and cities. The description of the manuscript tells us that it is given the shelf mark Cotton Tiberius B4. This means that it was originally part of Sir Robert Cotton's collection, and in his library it was in the bookcase that had the bust of the Emperor Tiberius on the top, on shelf B, and the fourth book along. Hopefully you will be looking at folios 128 verso to 129, In medieval manuscripts we often use the system of foliation. Here each separate leaf is given a unique number and we distinguish each side of the leaf 
by terming them either the recto or the verso. Looking at the chronicle, the left-hand side is the verso of folio 128, and the right-hand side is the recto of folio 129. In order to read the manuscript, we need to understand a few things about the letters or the characters that Anglo-Saxon scribes used. First, there is the thorn. This looks like a letter P with an ascender, i.e. a line going up. It's simply pronounced TH. We then have the ETH. The capital ETH looks like a capital D with a crossbar, and the lowercase ETH looks like a small d, slightly on its side, again with a crossbar. Again, this is pronounced TH, the. We then have the ASH. This is where an A and an E are joined together, and it is pronounced A. Finally, there is the win. This looks sort of like a P again, but without the ascender of the thorn. It was the character the Anglo-Saxons used for the sound W represented by R, W, and was actually originally a runic character, as indeed was thorn. Finally, in the manuscript, some of the letter forms are similar, but not exactly similar. First, there is the letter R, which looks like our modern-day R, but had a descender, i.e. a line going down below the bass line. The S is like the long S you might expect to see in, for example, Elizabethan printing. The letter G is like the Middle English yog. And they utilised a common abbreviation known as the Tyronean sign, which looks very similar simply to the number 7, but actually is an abbreviated form of the word and. Now let us look again at the manuscript of the Chronicle. On the left-hand side, the verso, count up five lines from the bottom to near where it says Rochester in the margin. Let us try and read the manuscript letter by letter. Starting with a large H, we have H, E, R, space, Win, Ash, S, space, M, I, C, E, L, space, Win, Ash, L, S, L, I, H, T, space, O, N, space, L, U, N, D, E, N, E, space, and then we have the Tyronean sign, space, O, N, space, C, A, N, T, Win, A, R, A, B, Y, R, I, G. We then have another Tyronean sign, space, O, N, space, H, R, O, F, E, S, C, E, A, S, T, R, E, and two of the words are underlined. In Old English, we would pronounce this as Herr was Mitchell Walslicht on Londoner, and on Kantwarabirig, and on Hrofeschiastra. In modern English, this means here was Mitchell, as in Mickle and Might, so great. Walslicht means slaughter in London, and in Canterbury, and in Rochester. You will notice that if you look around that most of the annals begin with H-E-R, hair, or here, which means here at this point in the manuscript, referring to the red annal entry in the margin. 
This is important because it tells us the manuscripts were meant to be read, i.e. the audience was at least in part literate. The entry we've just looked at is the entry for year 839 at the height of the first Viking Wars, hence the slaughter in London, Canterbury and Rochester towards the southeast of England. The next entry for 840 begins Herr Atherwolf, King Jefeacht, and try reading the words and letters there. Now let us look at the manuscript next to the Chronicle. This is the so-called Junius work calendar, or Cotton Julius A6. Look at the pages and you will see a curious mixture. Each one is dedicated to a particular month, in this case April and May, and as well as having the signs of the zodiac, we also get a list of Christian feast days. Most importantly though, at the bottom of each page there is a beautiful line drawing of a scene from Anglo-Saxon life. On the left, or verso, we see men at a feast being served drink and guarded by a warrior. On the right we see three shepherds guarding their flock, relaxing and chatting. Both pictures give us a wealth of pictorial evidence about the fashions and practices of Anglo-Saxon England, and these illustrations run throughout the manuscript. Finally, next to the work calendar, we have an example of an Anglo-Saxon charter. This is a document that bestowed land to someone, in this case awarded by King Canute in 1035, to a certain Eadsiga. The top few lines of the charter are in Latin, but then we have what is known as the Boundary Clause, and this is in Old English. This describes the boundary of the land by following a clockwise walk around the perimeter and noting obvious features such as hedges, rivers, bridges, etc. At the end of the charter we have the signature of Canute, the Rex Anglorum, and various witnesses drawn from nobility and clergy. Many charters survive from the Anglo-Saxon period, and they give us a lot of information about changing features of the landscape. At the time of the year known as Rogation Tide, the villagers would take the young children around the boundaries to memorise them, and if they made mistakes they would be beaten, hence the expression, beating the bounds. We are now going to move to one of the most famous pieces of Old English literature, Beowulf. This is held in case one by the entrance. Pause the podcast until you are there. In this very dark case are four manuscripts. At the bottom left there is the Beowulf manuscript, or Cotton Vitellius A15. This is the sole surviving copy of the great Old English epic poem Beowulf that stretches to over 3,000 lines, telling the story of the warrior Beowulf and his fight with the monster Grendel, his mother, and a dragon. Notice how each folio is held in a card frame. This is because in 1731 Sir Robert Cotton's library held in the appropriately named Ashburnham House was engulfed in a cataclysmic fire and many manuscripts were lost or damaged. The Beowulf manuscript is one such example and after the fire it had been re reduced to a series of loose leaves charred around the edges. The card frames hold each of the leaves in place. The manuscript itself dates from the end of the 10th century, but the date of the composition of the poem is a matter for considerable scholarly debate. Next to the case you can also hear Julian Glover's rendition of part of the poem in the audio recordings. Above the Beowulf manuscript is the first page of the draft of Seamus Heaney's translation of Beowulf. However, on the right we have two Middle English manuscripts dating from the 15th century. On the top we have a copy of Hockleave's Regiment of Princes, complete with a portrait of Chaucer. Beneath that there is a copy of the Canterbury Tales. Note how the letter Thorn is still used in these manuscripts, surviving from the Old English period. 
This is a simple but powerful illustration of the relationship between Middle English and Old English, i.e. the latter evolved into the former. Finally, we're going to look at a manuscript illustration. Go to the open facsimile of the Lindisfarne Gospels by the doorway, pausing the podcast until you get there. The Lindisfarne Gospels were produced in the late 7th century or early 8th century in Northumbria, and along with Sutton who demonstrate the sophistication of Anglo-Saxon art. This open facsimile allows you to browse through the whole book and elsewhere in the room and on the British Library's website, you can also see images of the whole book in digital form. Turn the book to folios 138 verso and 139 recto, the opening pages of St Luke's Gospels. On the left of this you will see the magnificent carpet page with its geometric designs and Celtic spirals. On the right there is the opening of the Latin with an Old English interlinear gloss, providing, as it happens, one of the first vernacular translations of the Bible, with the wonderful interlaced animals and thousands of red dots all over the page. Down the margin of the opening of the Gospel, we can see the body of a cat having swallowed several birds, and at the bottom its head looking eagerly towards more prey. The Lindisfarne Gospels are the supreme example of what is known as Hiberno-Saxon art, whereby we see a fusion between the designs of the Germanic Saxons and those of the Celtic Irish monks who came over to convert them. That they originated in Northumbria at the early period is understandable, as here the Celtic monks had the most influence, but also this was the time when the kingdom of Northumbria was ascendant. Go now to the actual Lindisfarne Gospels in the main part of the room with other illuminated manuscripts. Pause the podcast until you are there. Having looked at the opening of the Lindisfarne Gospels, you can also see to the right the 7th century Gospel of St John owned by St Cuthbert, one of the oldest bound books from the period. Note the artwork on the cover and note the similarities with the artwork on the carpet page of the Lindisfarne Gospels. Now move round the corner to the right to where the Ramsey Psalter is, a later example of Old English illuminated manuscript art. This is from around 300 years after the Lindisfarne Gospels and the style is notably different. We call this the Winchester School of Art as it developed under St Athelwold in Winchester in the mid-10th century. By then the main influence on the Anglo-Saxons was mainland Europe and especially the monasteries of the Carolingians, who so heavily influenced the English Benedictines. The Winchester School is typified by motives such as acanthus leaves, pillars, realistic figures and clothing, and designs which show the influence of Byzantine art on the Carolingians. In this brief tour, you have had the experience of reading from an old English manuscript, you have seen the survival of Anglo-Saxon letter forms into later periods, and you've observed how art can illustrate the political influences on the Anglo-Saxons. Unfortunately, the amount of Old English material on display in the gallery steadily decreases, seemingly to make way for yet more manuscripts from Asia. Yet you should take time to look at many of the other treasures on display, such as the later medieval manuscripts. <laughs>